You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Happy New Year, everybody. Remember how I said I was going to take a rest at the end of the last episode? Well, I started writing this one about an hour after exporting the 2023 finale. I didn't end up getting as far ahead as I would have liked, but I'm more or less rested than I thought I'd be, so I'll take it as a successful hiatus. Let's see if I remember how to do this, because it's been about a month which is the longest I think I've gone without doing this since August of 2020. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Poor Things, The Zone of Interest, and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. So Poor Things I briefly mentioned at the end of the year as being a Best Picture contender, and so far it's looking like that's going to be the case. If you're not familiar with the director, Yorgos Lathimos, he's a Greek dude who makes fairy eclectic films they're different grandma probably isn't gonna like them they're for the artier they're for the art school kids but with a plot poor things it's wonderfully weird it's beautiful to behold and it's horny as all get out i loved it not because it was horny just because it was good um but it is very horny it's not a film to watch with your parents unless you want to be scarred um i didn't watch it in the theaters but salt burn is also that way don't 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 watch that with um anybody that you'd like to look in the eye again after because you won't i'm glad i watched it alone But yeah, Poor Things, very, very good. You'll definitely want to catch it on the big screen if you can because the visuals are very vast, very large. It's very immersive. Definitely a theater film. Next, we've got The Zone of Interest. I continued my tradition that I started last year in seeing my first film of the year in a Quentin Tarantino-owned theater. If you're local to L.A. or visit L.A. and don't know, Quentin bought the Avista Theater on Sunset and revamped it. The theater shows current releases for the most part on film. Unlike the New Beverly, who sh- which shows like more curated things, older films, they do some newer stuff, but the Vista will only for the most part show new releases just on film prints. I decided to kick off 2024 by seeing one of the most disturbing films I've seen in a while at the Vista. The Zone of Interest is a Polish film that shows the life of the head of Auschwitz and his family in 1944. Despite it taking place right outside the walls of the concentration camp, you never actually see an act of violence on the screen. The horror behind the walls is depicted in the sound design against visuals of the daily family life of this this couple, this family. And while you never see anything, you hear 
everything. And the sound serves as a constant reminder of the absolute horrific things that are happening that the walls hide. And somehow just hearing it the whole time, but never seeing it is so much worse because your brain, having you know known about history and seeing other films about the Holocaust that take place in the concentration camps and portray that stuff, all of those visuals and everything you've seen in history books just starts running through your mind like a Rolodex while this film is like unfolding. And that's so much worse than seeing it. It is easily the most disturbing film I've seen in a while, even though I didn't see anything inherently disturbing. It is an absolute must watch. It's one of the best films that came out this year. Cannot recommend it highly enough. It is in a different language, which I know is a thing for some people. Suck it up. Go see it. Finally, in a complete shift of tone, we've got Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. If you liked the first one, you'll probably like this one. But it's very been there, done that as far as the story goes. And the CGI is real bad. Better than The Flash that came out like back in June, but only just. Basically, go and see it if you're a completionist like me. Stay for Jason Momoa, who was at his most peak Jason Momoa. If you're going for anything else, you will be disappointed. Before we get into this week's topic, another thing I kind of wanted to start this year to add to the podcast, and also as kind of like a personal challenge, and I found that if I establish something on here, I tend to hold myself more to it than if I just make like an internal goal. What I've kind of started doing in my free time is going through the Criterion Collection. There's like almost 1,400 films on it, like not counting. Like there's spines, it's less, but as far as like number of films, it's about 1,400 films. And I've started kind of lackadaisically going through it. So as a result, I'm going to start giving like just a weekly recommendation based on what I've seen the week before. Not a review, just a bonus film recommendation for the week. And this week I chose spine number 638. If you don't know, all the Criterion films have a spine number. And that is Christopher Nolan's Following from 1998. It's Nolan's directorial debut, and it was a cool watch to kind of see where all of his filmmaking style started. It's his first feature film. It's not his first film film. But yeah, that is the Criterion recommendation of the week. And now on to this month's theme. So now that we've done a ton of international cinema broad stroke histories, I think it's time to start diving into more film movements and genres specific to international film industries. We'll probably do some Hollywood ones too, but I've been feeling Italy lately, so I figured we'd start with that. So this month it's going to be all Italy, all the time. Let's do it. So instead of basically, like when I gave each like major movement like three or four minutes, this is going to be like 25 to 30 minutes. So it's still Still not as deep as it could be, but this isn't a class. This is just some, you know, you've, this is like the 150th episode or something crazy. Like I'm well, well into this. You know what's up. You know what this is. <laughs> you know what you signed up for. But yeah, this week, Italy's most prolific and arguably most important movement, Italian neorealism. Today, a brief look into Italian history preceding the movement, the characteristics of neorealism, and some of the most important filmmakers and works. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. So before we dive in, what exactly is neorealism? 
Neorealism literally means new realism. It, it's no deeper than that. Italian neorealism, also known as the golden age of Italian cinema, that's what scholars call it, was a national film movement characterized by stories set amongst the poor and the working class in post-World War II Italy. The execution of these films focused more on the authenticity of the story that is being told rather than the mise-en-scene and or aesthetics. These films portray the changes in the Italian psyche and conditions of their struggles, including poverty, oppression, injustice, and desperation, in the most unflinchingly honest way possible without it being an out-and-out documentary. Many of them toe the line, though. The plots of these films no longer conformed to the strict formulas of the past either. The movement in general rejected traditional cinema rules of the time, and due to the lack of remaining facilities, we'll get to that a little bit later, Italian filmmakers had to take to shooting in the streets after decades of being confined more or less to sound stages. Another change in the norm that is on full display with neorealism is who's actually on the screen. The on-screen talent is different. More often than not, the actors were actually non-professionals, often living lives similar to the characters they were portraying. And if it wasn't all non-professionals, there was usually a mix of both professional and not. The name of the game in neorealism is realism above all else, no matter how raw or how bleak. Honestly, the more raw, the more bleak, the better. Director Roberto Rossellini once stated that if a shot looked beautiful, it would not make it into one of his neorealist era films. Italian neorealism showed an unflinching look at the reality of Mussolini's Italy and its fallout for the common man, one of squalor, economic devastation, and a constant battle against falling into despair. Do not watch an Italian neorealist film to cheer yourself up. You might actually get more sad. Make sure the meds are medding that day. Neorealist films are, or Italian neorealist films, are overall rife with pessimism, as there wasn't a hell of a lot to be super stoked about in Italy at this time. And why might that be? Well... <laughs> Italian neorealism came out of World War II, and Italy had and went through it before and after that time. From 1922 to 1943, the Kingdom of Italy was controlled by the Fascist Party of Italy, led by Benito Mussolini. Throughout World War II, amongst, you know, not, not going into the atrocities today, Mussolini's government led the nation into political and economic uncertainty. As far as film was concerned, extreme censorship was implemented as the studios were forced to put out pro-fascist films and little else. Anything produced to the contrary would typically cause an unfavorable outcome for the filmmaker and the film would often just be destroyed. By the 1930s, Mussolini had realized what a valuable tool cinema could be as it was very popular amongst the Italian people and therefore he founded a studio, film school, and yes, even the Venice Film Festival, doubt they put that on the brochures, to create and spread his fascist ideals through cinema. And it probably goes without saying, but he banned all American imported films. These years of being cut off from those films would allow the Italian filmmakers to develop their own nationally influenced style of filmmaking that would be on full display after the war. Italy up to this point, cinematically speaking, hadn't really made a major dent in the world film industry since about 1914, which they'd done with their large historical epic films like Quo Vidi from 1913, which was one of the first blockbusters. Hollywood copied that format to great success. 
In an attempt to disrupt the production of propaganda, the prestigious Cinecita Film Studios, which was the studio Mussolini had founded and the biggest studio in Italy, was severely damaged by the Allied forces via a bombing. Once the jewel of Italian cinema, the studio was made unusable almost instantly. Fascism in Italy fell in 1943 after Mussolini was arrested by the King of Italy after a series of military defeats as well as political shifts within the country. This ushered in a new era for Italy. They switched sides in the war, eventually killed their fascist overlord after being occupied by Nazis, and Italy began an era known as the Italian Spring. This, of course, is an oversimplification of major world events, but this is more or less all the stuff you need to know in regards to what happened in Italian film next. When the dust settled, the filmmakers of Italy, climbing out of the rubble of a devastating world war for the second time in less than 30 years, were left taking stock of what remained of their once promising industry. The first thing that was obvious was the lack of facilities due to the bombings. This would ultimately force Italian directors to seek alternative filmmaking locations, which meant the decimated streets and buildings of their homeland. Before the fall of fascism, a group of critics writing for Cinema, an Italian film magazine ironically run by Mussolini's son, who was a film producer, so they couldn't be critical of the propaganda films, started heavily criticizing the Telefoni Bianchi films instead, or white telephone films. They were called this because at some point in the film, more often than not, a fancy individual would answer a pristine white telephone. These films, while not being straight propaganda, more escapist than anything else, were morally perfectly aligned with principles set out in Mussolini's fascist regime. For example, they were socially conservative, emphasized family values, featured a strict socioeconomic hierarchy, and respect for authority. These commercial Italian-made films were mimicking Hollywood comedy films stylistically and had no interest in the struggle of the working class. Those were background characters if they were present at all. Somebody's gotta serve the espresso. The Hollywood version of this that they were copying saw films that were very formulaic in their stories, optimistic in tone, and devoid of the risque. Production-wise, they were shot on sound stages using high-key lighting, basically meaning everything was bright and in view and chipper looking, all in all just creating a very sanitized image. This is known as the classic Hollywood cinema style, and while it certainly has a very important place in film history and established a lot of pipelines for film production in general, artistically speaking, it's the cinema equivalent of eating chicken and broccoli seasoned with salt and pepper. It'll get the job done, but Italian film audiences wanted a bit more flavor, and that would come in the form of Italian neorealism that would eventually be viewed as a formal rejection of old Hollywood slash Italian glamour. Post-World War II was a rough time to be Italian, or European for that matter. The continent was in economic turmoil. They just had a very expensive war for many years. The unemployment rate was sky high. The black market and or mafia was running rampant. It's believed that like 35% of residences had been destroyed. 25% of the Polish people had been killed. Most of Italy had been destroyed. And while they had flipped to the winning side once Mussolini was no longer in power, they still felt the repercussions of the five years that they had been supporting the losing side. That meant their bounce back would be slower than countries like France and England that were always on the Allied side. 
The religious and government infrastructures had also fallen apart as a 20 plus regime toppled. The Catholic Church was very, very pro-fascist. So a lot of their stuff fell apart, too, leaving the Italian people more or less rudderless and without aid. From this, the Italian filmmakers found their inspiration, for lack of a better term. To watch an Italian neorealist film is to find oneself on the streets of post-war Italy, watching stories not of fabricated characters, but of actual Italians of the time, giving an almost documentary feel to their plight. The camera melts away, and you are transported back in time to 1940s Italy. Like I said earlier, Cinecita, once Italy's largest studio, was destroyed during the war, meaning it couldn't be used as a production facility. If that wasn't enough, film stock was scarce, and even if filmmakers could get their hands on some, a lot of the film equipment was damaged as well. So there was a huge lack of supplies. Despite being disheartened, Italians took these hurdles in stride and made them hallmarks of the moment. Individuals doing this included directors like Roberto Rossellini, Lucino Visconti, and Vittorio De Sica, who had been working directors before and during the war. They returned to filmmaking the moment the fighting stopped, and some of them didn't stop even during the war. They had been trained in the calligrafismo movements of the 1940s, basically films that were just the antithesis of the white telephone and were a bit more contemporary in tone. They, like many people, were craving a raw type of cinema, one that classic Hollywood at the time could never. Several neorealist filmmakers, like their French New Wave counterparts 20 years from this movement, were actually film critics first. This included Lucino Visconti, who made the film Ossessione from 1943, which some film historians consider to be the first neorealist film. It's certainly the first to contain several elements of neorealism, if nothing else. For example, there's a very destitute working class group of Italians at the center of the film. It was shot in real locations. Those are those are kind of the big ones, honestly, of neorealism. Based on the novel The Postman Always Rings Twice, the film was shot using primarily medium and wide shots, unapologetically showing just how rough things had become in the Italian countryside under fascism. The film was released in May of 1943, while the fascists were still in power, though not for long, and the film was almost immediately banned. It also pissed off the Catholic Church, and in one screening of the film, a priest reportedly splashed holy water in the aisles of the theater. The film prints were ordered to be destroyed, but luckily Visconti managed to hold on to a negative, so the film is not lost. Fascism fell in Italy that September, but the capital was soon occupied by Nazi forces for the next nine months until the city was finally liberated. The first first Italian neorealist film, as far as most are concerned, is Rome Open City, directed by Roberto Rossellini in 1945. The film was shot in Rome, the capital of Italy, in the days following the end of the war, and tells the story of several characters living under Nazi-occupied Italy. The film was shot in the literal streets, with actual bombed buildings on full display, as well as cramped, decrepit family dwellings, and the director mixed both professional and non-professional actors within his cast, all hallmarks of what would eventually be called Italian neorealism. Rossellini had had to buy the film stock for this project off the black market and wasn't able to view what he'd shot until it was completely finished as he was shooting his film without permits, which was a big ol' huge no-no. He believed that all of the challenges of getting this film made were its best qualities. Rome Open City, with its multiple storylines, sudden deaths, and ambiguous ending, were just what the doctor ordered. The film was a hit with Italians and international audiences alike. Fun fact, it is the first mainstream Western film to show a toilet. 
Isn't that fun? Rome Open City was the first of three films that would make up Rossellini's war trilogy. All three are major parts of the Italian neorealist genre. I recommend watching all three. Paisan deals with the liberation of Italy and Germany Year Zero took place in L.A. occupied Germany. All three are hallmarks of the neorealist movement. After Rome Open City, the next significant film of this movement was probably De Sica's Shoeshine from 1946, which was about two shoeshine children who get in trouble with the police after trying to get money to buy a horse. This film also used non-professional actors, on-location shooting, and focused on the struggles of ordinary people. Critics praised the film for its powerful storytelling, authentic performances, and social commentary. It received international acclaim as well, earning a special Academy Award in 1948 due to its quality. This award would be the first of what ended up being the Best International Film Award, which is given out every year at the Oscars. Orson Welles would say of Shoeshine, quote, What Desika can do, that I can't do. I ran his Shoeshine again recently, and the camera disappeared. The screen disappeared. It was just life. This was the first of Desika's trilogy of solitude, and the other two will come up a little bit later in this episode. A lesser-known name, but a very important one for Italian neorealism, is Cesare Zavattini, an Italian screenwriter who worked with some of the biggest neorealist directors, especially De Sica, and was one of the biggest voices in the movement in establishing its kind of rules. Zavattini was also a novelist, theoretician, theoretician, and journalist who, in an essay, laid out more or less the manifesto of neorealism. He stated that he believed that a film should tell the story of the life of a regular man to whom nothing happens. So in this way, the character leads the plot rather than the plot happening to the character, which is how films before this were typically formatted. Zavattini was arguably the intellectual mind at the heart of this movement. His scripts attempted to show things at face value rather than how they might seem. His most famous film is probably Bicycle Thieves. Speaking of which, another hallmark of the neorealist movement was the use of children as symbols of optimism or the future or just renewal, rebirth, what have you. This did begin with Rome Open City with the child resistance movement and is most famously seen in 1948's Bicycle Thieves or The Bicycle Thief, both are correct, which was directed by De Sica. Bicycle Thieves tells the story of a father and his son trying to recover the father's stolen bicycle. If he can't find it, he will not be able to work, which means he won't be able to support his family because the other jobs just way too hard to get at this time. And the thing that set him apart was that he had a bicycle. Bicycle Thieves shows the state of Italy in the immediate years following the war, with its lack of employment and running water, and just overall the slow recovery in the working classes of the country. As the film progresses, the main character becomes increasingly desperate, driving him to attempt the same crime that was done to him after all the establishments of society fail to protect or assist him. DeSico is easily the most famous of the neorealist directors in America at this time, and he was even offered millions of dollars to make the film with Cary Grant as the lead by a Hollywood producer. DeSico instead chose a metal worker named Lamberto Majorani instead. I am Italian, but I can only do the Italian things if I do the Italian hands, which, while I am Italian, is technically not racist, but does feel racist. Anyway, Bicycle Thieves won the Best International Film Oscar in 1950, the second of this movement to do so, and the third film to ever earn this award. Italians came out swinging. 
Visconti's arguably first major contribution to Italian neorealism, or at least memorable contribution to this movement that was definitely in this movement, was La Terra Trema, or The Earth Trembles from 1948. The film is primarily in a Sicilian dialect, so it even felt foreign to people that the film was adjacently about. It is told in a documentary fashion featuring both scripted and non-scripted scenes, depicting the economic hardships of Sicilian fishermen. I have not seen it. I've heard I've seen clips. It looks great. I'm going to try and catch it this week. Italian neorealism was a short movement overall and numbers wise was actually a small output of Italian cinema even at the time. And it began fading in popularity in the early 1950s. Italian audiences had begun craving a change. The economy was starting to thrive once more, and the pessimistic tones of the neorealist movement just weren't appealing to audiences like they once had. People were ready to be happy again. So Italian audiences started shifting their focus back to the Hollywood films that were dominating the world screens, and the Italian industry needed to make sure that at least there were some eyes on their Italian stuff, which meant Italian neorealism would become kind of, you know a liability rather than anything else. Another thing that cut neorealism down was the Andriotti law, which, while supporting the Italian film industry with money, it made any films that were negative of Italy at all illegal to export. While film is an art form, it's also a business, so neorealist films, yeah, they weren't going to make much money anymore internally anyway, and therefore stopped getting financed. To appease international potential financiers, it was in the industry's best interest to go with the times, and neorealism faded away in favor of polished scripts and more conventional-looking films. The generally cited final film of the neorealist movement was Umberto D. from 1952, which was directed by De Sica. The film was received negatively amongst the Italian people as they saw it as too critical of the society everyone was desperately trying to rebuild. The critics loved it, though. And history in general has been kinder, as Umberto D. often appears on essential film lists. It was De Sica's favorite of his works, and he even dedicated the film to his father. There are some later films like Federico Fellini's La Strada from 1954 and even De Sica's film Two Women from 1960 that are sometimes considered to be part of this genre, movement, what have you, though they are more influenced by it than anything else. They have elements of it but aren't quite it, if you know what I'm saying. Italian neorealism inspired many filmmakers outside of Italy as well, notably Satyajit Ray, whose Apu trilogy, which came out starting in 1955, gave a similar look into the life of Indian serfs in the 1910s. Ray would say that his films were directly inspired by Italian neorealism. Italian neorealism was a vital film movement as for the first time, at least in Western cinema, a genuine concerted effort was given by filmmakers to depict the common man, a trend that still has plenty of space in world cinema today. The movement also depicted a painfully accurate depiction of post-war society that could only be captured in this way by the people who lived through the atrocities of fascism and a second World War. <music> and 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I also started adding the films I do from movie theater movie reviews, and now I'll start adding in the ones of the Criterion ones that I'm going to start recommending. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. I am chugging it today because I slept like crap. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're going to take a dive into peplum films, or as you probably know them better, the sword and sandal genre. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.